Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. Today is the last episode of season one of Third Act, and I am thrilled to be joined by one of the most successful coaches in college football, Chris Peterson. Few things are a bigger part of modern American culture than college football, which is often cited as both a training ground and metaphor for success in business and other pursuits. Football is often portrayed as a uniquely masculine sport and is described using military terms such as air raid offenses, attacking defenses, blitzes, and trench warfare. Because of that, some of you may think that the lessons offered by a successful football coach will have little relevance for you. But hang on. Coach Peterson retired from college football at the end of the 2019-2020 season to focus on what he calls his personal scoreboard, family, relationships, values, and friends. He's also helping other coaches learn to better balance what he calls society's scoreboard with his own personal scoreboard. Sound familiar? Well, keep on listening. Chris, welcome to Third Act. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Liz. I appreciate it. Yeah, and your son, Sam, who is a good friend of one of our interns, connected us. And he said, given that you're in your next phase of life, you'd be a great guest for the podcast. So thank you to Sam. Yeah. I'd like to start with what people did in what I call their first act, which is school. And typically, most of my guests were real overachievers and got really good grades in college. But... I think you told me that didn't really apply to you. So tell me a little bit about your first act. Well, I, I, I did work hard when I was in college because I had to. I always say I'm a, I was a hardworking B student. I was around a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, others that maybe didn't have to work as hard and the grades came easily yep. to them. But, you know, I didn't love school. In fact, I really just liked it. And I think the reason was, is because I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. You know, I thought about, you know, being a physical therapist. And so I'm in anatomy classes and, you know, just different things and nothing really touched my heart. So you're sitting in, you know, geology class and going, what does this have to do with anything? So college for me, in terms of like enjoying the academic part was a struggle. You said, though, you're type A, but you were destructively competitive. So what does that mean? Well, now, now you're heading into the, the arena that I do like. Which is- <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I loved competing. I loved doing all different sports. And, you know, I was fortunate to win a lot along the way. And I, I don't know. I think when this thing really hit me is I was in high school My dad was a football coach at a community college forever. So I grew up around football since it's, you know, it's my earliest memories. And I remember watching some of his games. And I I remember the guys losing and thinking that I cared more about them losing than watching their expressions and how they interacted after a loss. And I would, you know, when I thought about getting into coaching and, those type of things. And in fact, I told my mom then, I was like, I would never get into coaching. I would never let 18 to 22 year olds control my happiness. You know, that's what coaching was so much about. And, um, and so it was like, I just, you know, was just really into winning always. And I was on a lot of good teams that won a lot. And when we didn't win, I mean, it was, you know, I'd hang on to those losses and it would fuel my fire in a lot of ways. And, 
you know, you, you can start getting off course when you are not just really learning from losses. You're just being upset by losses. Was football your sport or did were you, I assume you're a multi-sport person, but was football always your main sport? No, I, I didn't really. It was, I mean, you could consider it a main sport because my dad was a football coach, but he really wasn't one for having me play as a youngster. So I didn't, I didn't really play till I was in high school, but I was into tennis. I was into track. I was into basketball. I mean, all those type of things. In fact, you know, I probably liked basketball more than football when I was, uh, you know, in high school. I think I just, ex- I was probably too short to play basketball. I was six feet tall and, and excelled more in football. So I just kind of headed down that path. So after you got out of college, you went on to grad school, but then what, I mean, how did you end up actually getting into coaching and what were you thinking since, you know, your whole earlier, you had said you, you never thought you'd become a coach. Yeah. Well, so I'll kind of backtrack in terms of, I was really focused on getting a degree. Like I knew that was important. I went to a good school. I went to UC Davis and it was a hard school. It was a great school and I had to work at it, even though I didn't like it. And I remember my, you know, my calling my dad and when I probably a junior in college and saying, dad, if it wasn't for football, I'd be out of here. And he's like, great, keep playing football. And I'm like, what? You know, it's okay that I don't like it. Yeah, just keep playing, you know, and you'll connect it off later in life. I know is what he was thinking. So then I get done playing and, and I, you know, obviously love to play, but I really had no plan. And I had an opportunity. I thought I was going to Canada to play football. And right before I went to go up to Canada, that team had folded up. It was the Montreal Alouettes at the time. And, and so I had really no plan. And I did not know what to do. So I sat there for about three weeks and tried to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? And, you know, I talked to one of my professors. I was a psychology major only because those classes I could tolerate more than the other classes. And, and so I, you know, I said, you know, you can get into grad school if you have interest in that. And, you know, I had a little bit of interest, but I really just had no plan. So <laughs> okay. I called my mom and I said, mom, I got a plan. She's like, what, did you get a job? Great. I said, no, um, I'm going to go to grad school. And she's going to grad school. Why would you do grad school? And I'm like, no, I, I think it'll be okay. And, and, you know, I didn't want to tell her. It's like, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> so I did. So I was doing that. And then at the time at UC Davis, we had a freshman football team that had about 90 players and, and they just didn't have a, a, a young head coach type that, that usually would take over that team. They just, they usually had young coaches coaching and, and I knew that it was kind of a hard gig to get. So they asked me when my Canadian opportunity fell through, if I wanted to coach the team. And I said, well, if I can go to grad school and, and I knew it was a hard position to, to get. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And, and the second thing is, I think I got all the answers. I just got done playing. I think I know what coaching and teaching is all about. And so I agreed to do it. And, you know, little did I know at the time until about two weeks taking the team over, I knew nothing. I couldn't even get them in. I mean, it was the most challenging thing that I'd ever been through. Did you ever do anything other than coaching before you went into coaching or did you just kept, kept, uh, kept up as a coach? Yeah, no, I didn't do anything else. Um, you know, I obviously had some odd jobs and worked through college. Well, I mean, I will say this, like I was going to school and UC Davis at the time was a division two non-scholarship school. So you know, I, you know, I was working during school and, you know, trying to, it took me 10 years to pay off my student loans and all those type of things. And so I did odd jobs, but, but really just then went to, you know, school. I was coaching on the side and I started enjoying the coaching part of things. 
it started becoming really intriguing to me. It was like hugely overwhelming to start with because I thought I knew everything. And then I quickly realized I knew nothing. And so I coached the first year that was really interesting into me. I mean, I just learned so much about leadership and organization and team building. So the next year, uh, the coaches wanted me to coach up on the varsity team. And I said, I really want to coach this JV team again. I want a do-over. And so they said, huh? And I said, yeah, I just, I, I just feel like there's so much I need to go back and redo. I can do a better job. It was just like an internal thing. And, you know, this thing, I wasn't still thinking about really coaching for, you know, my career. But as I was going to grad school, so I said, yeah, that's fine. I did it again. Got a little better at it. Was more intrigued with it. And then I coached for another year up on the varsity. And as I'm, you know, finishing my master's, I kind of made a decision. I need to think about, am I going to get into coaching or going to pursue some of the psychology thing? I was going to be a school psychologist and go down that avenue. And I think the thing that's really intriguing about that is I remember my wife now, fiance at the time, you know, we were kind of talking about the two different paths to take. And one of the, you know, issues we talked about was the money situation. If we decided to go down the coaching route, we were going to live a very humble, you know, lifestyle. I mean, the, the money's just not in the coaching thing. It's, a lot of moving around too, right? Potentially. Yeah, a lot of moving. It's you know, it's like being a you know a high school teacher. You're like, mm-hmm. you know, you teach a class and you get paid primarily for that, but the coaching there's just there's not money in it. And then you know, fast forward thirty years later, the whole script flips in terms of the economic piece. But we consciously said, you know what? I think the coaching thing is going to be more into what I'm aligned with, even though it's not going to be about money. Like that's going to be a sacrifice. And so we decided to head that route. So you coached at UC Davis, at Pittsburgh, at Portland State, at Oregon, and then you get the job at Boise State. So, and that turns into your first head coaching job. And how... How was that? How, and how was that? How did that change your life? <laughs> um, Maybe we need a two podcast for this, but just this is a big deal. I know. Yes, 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 yes. This might be like the the, the fourth or fifth act. I don't know. I mean, there's so. Yeah, I, um, you know, the coaching world in college football is super, super demanding in terms of time commitment. As a head coach, there's usually stuff always going on. Think about this. You have 120 males between the ages of 18 to 22 year olds. That's just your team. I've got two of them. And that's enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I've joked many times. It's like I'm dealing with the dumbest, you know, group in America, the 18 to 22 year old males that just like they get together and there's some, there can be some bad decisions being made. I was one at one time, so I know. And then I've watched it for 30 years. So there's always something going on. Yeah. And so it is because you don't just coach football. There's a huge recruiting piece and that never ends. And, you know, nowadays you're recruiting kids that are in ninth grade, sometimes eighth grade, you have them on your radar. So it's not just like a senior class that you're recruiting. There's a junior class, there's a sophomore class in high school. And so it's just, it's nonstop in terms of visiting and, and visits they take to your campus and phone calls and Zoom calls and, and then let alone just running your team and your organization. So it's a, it's 24, seven, 365. Now, when you were telling me you had phenomenal success at Boise state and you said you got to a point where 
you maybe weren't loving it. Talk a little bit about that and what was what was sort of going through your head. Oh, yeah. You know, so I decide, so I'm there five years at Boise State as offensive coordinator. And then at that time, our head coach decides to take another job to go to the University of Colorado. And so I have to make a decision. Do I want to go with him and keep doing the job that I was in or stay and be the head coach? And my first inclination was to go with him. I was still getting better at being an offensive coordinator. I, I was really starting to, I felt, get good at it. And I was starting to, you know, enjoy it quite a bit. And I knew, obviously, from being in the business, that being a head coach is a completely different skill set. And a lot of those skills and a lot of the job responsibility requirements was something that I wasn't super excited about. So I decided to, for three days to go with him and you know, during that three-day period, I just realized in my heart, I had no excitement about moving again to do the same job. And so I started thinking about being the head coach and I, at least I had a lot of energy coming my way. It was probably nervous energy, scared energy, excitement, all those things thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'll take a shot at this and just see what it's like. Maybe I'll do it for a year and just test the waters. Well, I was set up for success and we, we hit the ground running. I, we had a really good team. I, you know, I inherited a strong culture. I'd been part of it. I knew how to tweak things and, you know, maybe take the next step. And so we start out my first year, which everybody thinks is the greatest thing ever, but also could have possibly been a curse. In some ways, we win all of our games. We're 13 and 0. And, you know, we, we win a really memorable game against Oklahoma in the Fiesta yeah. Bowl. And so there starts my head coaching journey. And, so I'm the head coach there for, I think it's eight years. Do you feel your sense of identity change as you become the head coach? <laughs> yeah, gosh, that's a great question. I'd, I'd like to say no, but but probably. It's almost like that frog in the frying pan. You don't know what's really happening as you go through this. And you probably do you know, maybe start to take on a different identity some some way, somehow, you know, and you try to, I don't know, live up to that. I mean, I think that's one of the things that bothered me about the job is I felt like I couldn't be completely authentic to who I really was. And maybe some of the things that were going on in our program, one, because the recruiting was so intense, you really didn't want to let out too much what you were doing to the public inside. You knew that would go to your competitors. And then two, you know, with the media, it would, it would be such a public, like if, if something happened to one of your players or they didn't play well or a coach left or a group struggled, your job as the head coach is to protect your people. Well, my job was to take all the arrows and just deflect it from them. And so I felt like I couldn't be really authentic and as honest as I wanted to be and saying, well, this is what really happened. And so there were some struggles for sure all along in terms of, you know, we were having great success on the field and I did feel like we were building and getting better, but certainly there was a lot of internal struggles building up inside. Is this when you started your program, the Built for Life program for your uh, athletes? Yeah, so that was one of the things that did give me a sense of purpose and a, a sense of joy and fulfillment. It was really like the theme or the purpose, part of the purpose of our program. You know, everybody gets you there to win games, but that's a whole nother conversation. And if you don't win games, you're not gonna be there. We all get that. And I learned early on that 
I certainly was not going to be fulfilled enough by just winning football games. If it's just about competing games, that, that, that was not <laughs> what this was all about. So we really developed this, this Build for Life program and just tried to create a program. Like if our sons were playing for us, what would we want to do for them? And so it became like a program to help these kids build a vision and a value system and a skill set for a real successful career and extraordinary life. And we wanted to use football as a platform that we would say to, to build real men and championship teams. And so that thing started to take a life of its own. I really started to feel like this was really important work and the feedback that we would get from our players, they understood like they might not have really wanted to hear some of these messages and left lessons and, and, but it turned into a 24 seven program. Like this is who we were in our DNA and really, I think, appreciated it at the end of the day. You said to me earlier when we were prepping for this that you always said football was plan B. So we know that because so many of the guys, certainly at the level that I was coaching at Boise State, Oregon, Washington, everybody in their minds is thinking, I, my goal is to get to the NFL. I want to go to the NFL. In those top programs, roughly what percentage of the student athletes end up in the NFL? Probably 1%. Wow. Yeah, it's hard. We actually at Washington, we had a handful of guys every year, more than a handful, go get a shot in the NFL. But to be able to stick to the average, the average, you know, span of a career in the NFL is a little less than three years. So they would say it's probably, you know, about 1%, maybe a little bit over of all the college kids that make it. But we were fine with that. Like we wanted to help kids chase their dreams. We just wanted to put this in perspective and say, okay, as we're pursuing these football dreams, football is going to come to an end someday. That is plan B. We are playing plan B first. Like it's semantics and we get that. Plan A is the rest of your life whenever football is going to be done. So let's just say you go to the NFL and have this unbelievable career of nine, 10 years. You're all pro. You've made all this money. You're, you're set, so to speak. And then you're 29 years old. And you have 60 years left to live your life and you have no plan, no vision. You see so many guys just go, you know, awry, lose all their money, get divorced, all these issues. We just see this over and over and over again. So we're like, we want to make sure they're chasing their dreams, but give them a skill set on how to do life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrific because, as you said, I, I know enough football players, uh, friends of my children, that if you're dedicated to that sport, you do kind of get a bit myopic thinking you're going to play at the top levels. And it's uh, so few people actually do. How is it that you decide then you're at the top of your game at Boise State? How is it you decide to go to UW? Yeah, so very interesting. The end of my time there, you know, I was always pretty energized about there's something more to do, something more to build, even though we were winning a lot. A lot of you know, why are you staying here? There's, you can't really do much more. We were going to the, the big time bowl games at the time. They were called BCS, you know, the BCS games. They were the best of the best bowl games. You know, we had a couple undefeated seasons, you know, so people are going, hey. but I never felt like that wasn't what I was chasing. I wasn't saying we got, I got to win a national championships. I, I just wanted to do the best we could and really help these kids you know, on the Bill for Life stuff and put together really awesome, cool, elite teams. 
But towards the end of my run at Boise State, I just started, it's very hard for me to describe, even to this day. I just had started having some really weird feelings is maybe the best way to put it, that I, I was now all of a sudden, for some reason, not as fulfilled. I was becoming a little bit frustrated. I just didn't feel I was being my best with, with the players, with our coaches. And, I, and my wife could really feel it. And she's like, you know, you need to figure something out. You either need to get a, get out of this thing and get on another path, or you need to take a new job or figure something out. And I, you know, and I'm just kind of thinking, I'm not really sure what's going on. I don't know what this is. I mean, we couldn't, like I said, we were having really good success, but it, I was not like fulfilled and at peace at all. So then the opportunity at Washington comes up along and I knew that my values fit the University of Washington. I was about academics. I was about trying to recruit elite kids that were really into, you know, the academic world and if football didn't work out, I knew we were going to give them something special with Bill for Life, with that, the power of the Washington degree, all those type of things, the city of Seattle, the connections. So that really aligned with me. And I thought, well, maybe this will help me just Maybe I just do need a new set of problems. <laughs> I love that. A new set of problems, new set of challenges. So you go there, obviously very successful. I will say this. I was under no illusions that I was going to come to Washington and my football life was going to be better. Like I knew winning in the Pac-12 and coming to Washington was going to be much harder than how we were winning at Boise State. I just felt like, okay, maybe it's time to take this challenge on and see how we can do. You know, Boise State was just such a great setup in terms of the who we were playing that was in our league in the West. We, we changed leagues a couple of times. But the, the type of talent that we could attract, the community of Boise, it was just in the in, in the arena we were competing in and playing in, we just had such a really nice advantage. When you get in the Pac-12, the margin for error is so much thinner and you're, everybody has great resources and everybody can pay their coaches a tremendous amount and everybody has great facilities. So all of a sudden the competitive advantage that you have over someone gets very, very thin. And then after two years, we took off and we hit our stride a little bit. We got to the college football playoffs. We went to some big time bowl games. But after about this fifth year, I started having similar feelings um, that I had at Boise State. And one of the kind of eye-opening moments for me was we went to the Rose Bowl. Now, the Rose Bowl for me was a bigger deal than going to the college football playoffs like we did a couple years earlier. I grew up on the West in the Pac-12 with, you know, paying attention to that, coaching in the Pac-12. And so it was always about the Rose Bowl. And I always thought, boy, if I, you know, I was even a kid, if I could ever play in a Rose Bowl, that would be so special. Or then when I was not good enough to play in a Rose Bowl, like if I got, you know, coaching, boy, if I ever coached in a Rose Bowl, I would like had made it. So fast forward, we get to a Rose Bowl and we play in the Rose Bowl. We play a really good Ohio State team. We do not win. And so about a month after, you know, playing that game, I'm reflecting on how much, one, I did not enjoy the week of the Rose Bowl. And they treat you like kings, right? You go to 
Disneyland. It's just beautiful. It's such a reward for our players. But I was really worried about the game, us, you know, the competing thing again. Are we going to be able to hold up against these guys? Can we beat these guys? And I thought Ohio State was, you know, a highly ranked team, but I even thought they were a little bit underrated in terms of how good I thought they were. So the week was a really stressful in our preparation. We play the game. We really probably don't play as well as I think we should. We make the game close at the end. And I leave the game just with not really a good taste in my mouth at all. And about a month later, I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? Like, this is what you've been aspiring to for your whole life. And you don't appreciate that? Like, you are in left field. Like, what is going on? And I mean, I'm kind of having this conversation with myself in my head thinking this. And I'm like, wow, here, here we go again. And I think there's a lot of parallels to our listeners who are corporate. And I've had the same feelings as well. Like I've had a big job. I've loved it. I feel like I'm the top of my game. And then I just get that sort of angsty itchiness, like something's not. And it's usually my husband who calls it out as well. So what, what happens after that? Do you leave? Is that, that's not the season you, you keep going, correct? No. So we still, um, so that's like my fifth season here at Washington. And so, you know, I have those thoughts in my head and then we're going into my sixth season, which ends up being my last season. And in the summertime going into that, or maybe right in, in fall, before we start football, one of my coaches hands me, he goes, hey, coach, I saw this really awesome quote. And I'm like, yeah, because we're always, you know, I'm really huge on the culture and the team building and how to make us better. And so all of our guys are always talking about these type of things. But he goes, hey, have you ever seen this? And he hands it to me and it says, a man has two lives. The second one begins when he realizes he only has one life to live. And I looked at that and I'm like, whoa. And I don't know why it just hit me so hard because I'd always been that person to think, hey, you know, down the road, I'm going to do this. And maybe someday I'll get to the Rose Bowl and maybe someday I'll coach here and maybe someday I'll get out of coaching and do something else. And maybe down the road, down the road, down, I'm always like next thing, next thing. And that just hit me. It's like, wait a minute, I'm getting older here in my career. There is no down the road. My life is going to be over. I'm going to look back and go, what happened? And so that quote, and it actually, you know, I didn't know who said that quote. It was, you know, it was Confucius. And, you know, that was kind of ringing in my head, even going into the season, my last season. And then we go through that last season. And again, I'm starting to have some of these feelings, same feelings of like frustration, lack of fulfillment, you know, very little peace in my heart. And everything is a struggle. And we go through that season towards the end. And I just realize I am not doing the best job I can. I'm having the same issues that I've kind of started to have within the Boise. And I cannot get clarity of what's going on. This job is too demanding. It's 224, 7365. And the only way I'm going to be able to figure out my life is for me to step away from this and hopefully figure it out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I will, but I know I haven't been able to figure it out in this crazy, hectic life that I'm living. So I decided to step away. You said that it's allowed you to gain a lot of clarity since you stepped away. How is, how has that happened? It was really good. And um, I will tell you one thing. I mean, one of the first, 
moments of clarity about winning and achievement and you know all this thing is, is probably a month after I had stepped away and was feeling great about things. Like I really felt like a lot of pressure had come off my shoulders and it was the right decision. Although I had no clarity why, I just knew like this is this is right for me right now. And I my wife this. I think it was the very end of like pro football because college football finished up. We played our bowl game. We won our bowl game and we're watching. And I think we were in, you know, I don't know, playoff game, NFL or Super Bowl. And I, I don't even know why I said it. And I said to my wife, I said, Hey, Barb, do you think I'd still be coaching if we had a really good season, went back to the playoffs, won the Rose Bowl, something like that. And I thought, I don't even know why I asked it. And I completely thought I knew the answers that she would say to me. She'd say, I thought she was going to say, there's no way you had enough. You'd been through this in, enough times. And she says, Oh yeah, you'd still be coaching. Oh, wow. And I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> I'm like, there's no way. I mean, for like an hour, I'm, I'm like, you think I'd still be. And so she's, you know, we discussed it back and forth. And for a month, I could not get that conversation out of my head. And by the end of the month, I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion, you know what? She's probably right. That winning success achievement masks so many things and keeps you moving along your journey, even if it's not the journey that you really are like wanting for yourself. Yeah. And that's what I felt looking back had happened to me a lot of times. Like I, I was not being fulfilled, but all this winning and success still masked all these things and kept me on the path that I really needed to be on a different act or mountain or path. And, and going back to the scoreboard notion. So you're putting all these points on the board on, but from a football perspective, right? It's very easy to measure, but mass maybe things that were on the personal scoreboard that were perhaps lagging. Yeah. So, you know, again, with a lot of, reflection time. And really the interesting thing too was then COVID hits. And so now we're really locked down and it probably, you know, like everybody, I mean, there, there's, there's always that silver lining in the thunderclouds. Right. And so for me, at first, I'm like, are you kidding me? We're getting locked down. This is my one chance. I'm finally not doing this after 33 years and I can't go travel anywhere. I can't go. We're just locked down, but it really gave me a chance to really you know, reflect, talk to a lot of people, read a lot. And so what kind of came to my mind after, you know, I'm not an original guy. These are other people's original thoughts, whether they're scorecards or scoreboards, but like I'm a sports guy. So everything has always been about the scoreboard. Mm -hmm. Even like, you know, you watch little kids play in a basketball game and it's the participation world that we're in, right? The participation trophy world we're in. Like, Oh, in this league where the seven-year-olds are just starting to play their first game, there's no scoreboard. We just play for the love of the game. Well, I've been to those games, and those kids know exactly what the score is. They do. <laughs> People are wired to keep score. Yeah. The kids are lost. Like, we beat, oh, you know, we lost by two points. And the parents are like, what? They know. So, you know, it's like about the scoreboard. And that's the world I've been in forever. And so the, you know, society scoreboard is all about wins and losses. It's about approval. It's about money. It's about status, promotions, power, rankings, followers, hours worked as a badge of honor, all those type of things. 
And so that that scoreboard continually gets expanded. That's where you get all your reinforcement for. Even if you know, like, I don't, that's not me in terms of my heart, because that's all extensive motivation. And we all know from any psych 101, right, extension, you know, extrinsic motivators are very short lived. And so that's all extrinsic motivation. Everything in my life was going to be rewarded by winning and losing and status and promotions. And, and it's just like, and I would get more of that and more of that. And it didn't make me feel any better. And in a lot of times it made me feel worse. And so then you start thinking, okay, we all have this personal scoreboard. Some of us don't even know we have, or some of us that do know we have it, depending on the world we're living, the job that we have, it gets shrunk, it doesn't get emphasized. And the personal scoreboard, you know, is all about your relationships. It's about your family. It is about your colleagues. It is about your purpose in life. Like who thinks about their purpose in life? I mean, certainly not me. I mean, and, and actually I did think about these things and I kind of gave them some lip service of writing some stuff down, but I didn't, I didn't lock into them enough to live it. It's about your values. It's about, you know, it's about faith. It can be about health. It's about growth. It's about mindfulness. It's about creativity. It's about job mastery. It's about you being really authentic. So it's a big list of things that are going to be all intrinsic motivation that really can touch your heart. And so for me, that was kind of an aha moment. It's like, okay, I get this. It has been all about society scoreboard forever competing, beating the guy across from me and getting rewarded for it and thinking that that's going to make me good. I know when I left my job that my identity was tied up with it. Not, I had a big job at a big title. I made a lot of money. When I walked in a room, everybody knew who I was. You even more so. I mean, cause you're out in the media, you know, you got a Wikipedia page. There's thousands of articles written about you. How is it without those, that constant reinforcement has, has it, what do you find to fulfill yourself, to, to build yourself back up now that that's sort of been taken away or, or, or you stepped away from it? That's a really good question. And I'm still figuring all that out. Yeah, it's hard. Um, yeah. It, but it's great. I will just tell you this, like, and I'm not saying that society scoreboard is a bad thing. Right. Like I think, you know, achievement and having some approval by the people that are close to you that you really respect and admire, your friends, your colleagues, you know, people that really know what's going on and understand you. I mean, all that, it, it's, you know, it's good to have money, but you can never get enough of what you don't really need more of. Yep. And that's all about society scoreboard. And so my thinking on this is it's about balancing the scoreboards. It's not about like get rid of society scoreboard or if one gets too out of whack, at least for me, if it was just all about the personal scoreboard, well, to me, I'm probably going and living like a monk somewhere and that ain't going to do it for me. Like I still need to compete. Yep. I still need to like win and chase things. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of like toggling back and forth keeping things in perspective. And I think one of the keys to life is just being able to control the quality and balance of your life. And I had no balance. I can't imagine. I mean, I, uh, corporates all say they don't, but if you really think about it as a head coach, especially with the 18 to 22 year olds, you know, I, 
when you're in the business world, you can hire your people, you can hire them from the best and you can fire them, et cetera. But we're not dealing with 18 to 22 year old men. I mean, that's just mind boggling because your life was dependent on it, right? What they did. I assume you got some calls where they went bump in the night a few times too, right? Yeah. I mean, life depends on it. And you know, and that, so that really tied in strongly to the built for life program. Like, so one, you really need, you know, because some people would talk about like coaching high school football. Like I know a lot of coaches that say, Hey, I want to stay in high school because I can make more of an impact with the kids. I totally get that. That makes sense to me. Those are super formative years. But what I learned is these kids that come to college, they need you more than ever before because now they have more freedom than they've ever had. And so, you know, the parents are just keeping their fingers crossed and all these lessons they hopefully taught them and that they learned. And what we found is like, it's your, you know, it takes a village. Like we're taking the baton and saying, okay, we got you parents. Now watch, we're going to pour gas on the fire on all these fundamentals of success and principles of living a good life. And they need to hear this over and over and over at the bottom of the level. So one, they stay out of trouble, but two, like, so they get this and like, understand, I mean, really what we're talking about is your personal scoreboard, like how to put that together, how to have values, like, you know, values as an 18 year old, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> My value is trying to run fast and score touchdowns. Without that type of value, <laughs> a different type of value. So now that you've stepped away from coaching, you're still part of the University of Washington. You're the Fritzky Chair of Leadership at the Foster School of Business. So what are you going to do at Foster? What does that entail? One of the things that I was, and I still may do down the road, is possibly even teach a class. I do do a lot of presentations. I do come into a lot of classrooms and give my, you know, experiences on teams and leadership and all those type of things I'm very passionate about. I mean, my deal is, is, you know, I want to educate and impact. I mean, that's really what it is. And so I just want to find a new platform and a new way to do this. I want to help coaches figure out how to coach and all the hard lessons that I've learned. I always say, you know, I got my PhD in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> no doubt. It'd just be like, you work through these things and you'd say, why didn't somebody just tell me this? And you know, looking back, most of the time I was told, I just wasn't hearing it. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know if you can answer. But again, most of our listeners are women. So, and women don't play football generally, right? So when I started 30 some years ago in 19, I don't know, 1987, the first year of coaching. So I played, you know, all through high school, all through college. Like there, there were not women around football. I mean, the only time were women like, you know, your mom in the stands or something. Fast forward to my time at Washington. I think about the 10 most biggest influencers in my life, in my job as the head coach at the University of Washington. They were 10 women. Really? So, and I will just tell you, that here's the list. So obviously you start with your, your wife, your spouse, right? Yeah. And she doesn't know very much about football, but she knows me and she knows about treating people right. And she knows those. So, so much would come you just have so many discussions with her that you can't have with your staff or other people. So, so much by far, obviously the number one influencer, but then it goes to the president at the university of Washington. Anamari. Yeah. Our athletic director, Jen Cohen, my administrative assistant that was involved with everything female, our team doctor, female head of academics, female director of football operations, 
female. Wow. Head of our football marketing, female. Our sports psychologist was this female. Director of compliance, like the rules of, like we got to adhere to, female. And now we see women in actually doing college football coaching as well as in the NFL, which is great, you know, fantastic. The thing about football and about big team sports, uh, and there's more of it now, obviously, with women's soccer and things. But like one thing I missed out on is I think there's a lot to be gained by playing uh, team sports and being put under the pressure of high school and college football, you know, and, and figuring your way through it. And as you have worked with these, the 10 women, and also as you've gotten more exposure to the foster school and maybe some of the other women, I mean, are there any lessons that you've seen that women may have missed because they're not involved in these kind of sort of big money, big sports kinds of games? And I know, again, that's changing with basketball and soccer and the Megan Rapinos of the world, but but generally most women would never have had any exposure to it. Yeah, and I think the beautiful thing about the, you know, the era we're living in now is how fast things are changing and how people are waking up and opening their eyes and saying, <laughs> why, why can't they be involved, right? There are guys that coach football at a very high level that did not play the game. I mean, those are few, but it doesn't matter. Like you can study the game and still become an expert. You can study leadership and be an expert. Yeah. Oh, so there's still hope for me to go back to Ohio State and coach? (laughs) (laughs) No, there is. And so, you know, that's what I think about that. I mean, I think the stereotypes are just the walls are being kicked down so fast as we speak. So in addition to uh, your work at Foster and extending the Bill for Life program, what else are you doing now that you're in sort of your third act or fourth act or whatever we would call it. Yeah. So, so another thing that I'm doing is I am doing some consulting with some coaches. And so that's, you know, really another way to make an impact. Uh, Some of the things that I've been through and the way we set our programs up to be able to share some of those things and help some guys is, is, you know, is really good stuff for me. And so, you know, that, that is interesting. I don't know if I'm going to do any one thing. I'm going to probably do some speaking. I'm probably going to do a little bit of teaching get into some broadcasting things, but I just, I I still, the thing that I know where I am right now is I still really want to impact and help people on just some of the things that I've been through. And it's like, if I can share my experiences to help somebody else in their journey, you know, the one thing that I've learned, Liz, is we're we're all just wired the the way we're, we're just wired to struggle. Like it goes back to evolution, right? Yep, yes. <laughs> We're just going to struggle. And like, the, you know, the first fight that we have every day is me versus me. It's not the competition. It's not adversity. It's not the vision within, which those are all fights. We would always talk about we have these four fights every day. But the main hurdle I got to get over is myself and that create awareness on just different things like what do I struggle with? And knowing like the way we're wired, we're not wired to be super optimistic. We're wired to be paranoid so we can survive. So many are wired to be selfish, like, but that's not what touches our heart. It's opposite things. And so that's when you understand that, that's like a cool battle, a cool competition to have every day, like one, getting over yourself and, and, and getting yourself right. And then you got a chance to do some other things and help some other people. 
I was going to name this podcast. I'm not done yet because that's the way I feel. So what aren't you done with yet? Uh, try, trying to figure out how to live this one, one beautiful life that we have and try to, and try to truly appreciate most days. You know, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, I just love the mindfulness work that's coming out and, you know, meditation, all these things. And, you know, some of the stuff is like, okay, touchy feely. I'm a football coach. (laughs) Right. But what I think about that is, is like this mindfulness of like, and it's something that we would always talk about of be here now that your mind and your body are in the same place at the same time. That is so hard for me to do. And so to train my mind to be right here, be in the moment, appreciate with gratitude that I am here, I am healthy. And even though, you know, you might be struggling with something, what can I find is like, wow, this is pretty cool. And so that's what I, you know, as I go on to this third act, I'm excited and energized because of all the hard lessons I have learned and I've created a lot of clarity for myself. And if I can help bring clarity to others through some of the stuff that I've banged my head on the wall a million times, that will be awesome. Well, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. And thank you again to Sam. Uh, you've, you know, it's interesting, as I said, it's uh, our audience is, you know, I don't know how many of them are football fans, hopefully most of them, but so many things that you've said so parallel my life and uh, you just have some great lessons. And so I thank you. Where can we find you online? If people mm. want to follow you. Good luck. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> my, my last tweet was sent out uh, December of 2019 leaving Las Vegas. And so that is a whole nother conversation, social media that has like put that on society scoreboard that make my life a lot less enjoyable. Yeah. So you don't know LinkedIn, none of that. So we just, we'll just look for you in the press and follow you that way. Is that sound good? At the Foster School of Business. Perfect. Perfect. And I teach there too. So we'll see you there. So Chris, thank you so much for your time and all of your lessons. And uh, we look forward to having people listen. Thank you. Thanks for having me on Liz. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.